Jesus is risen. It's wonderful to see us all here today to celebrate the fact that Jesus is risen. That on that first Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. We make a huge fuss over that fact as Christians at Easter time, don't we? And yet it's interesting how even if we're Christian here today, we often struggle to explain the importance of the resurrection, to explain its significance to our friends, to our family, to those whom we meet. That's been true of me in my own experience. Uh, In the past, I've been sharing the good news of how Jesus died at the cross for us, and in doing so, he took the punishment for our sins. And I've been fine on that. But then it comes to the resurrection that follows the cross. And I find myself struggling to explain why the resurrection is so significant. Why is the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead so important? Isn't all the work he did, didn't he save us at the cross? What is the resurrection all about? Why is it so important? I think for many of us we can see it as just a nice ending to the story of Jesus. It's recorded for us as if Steven Spielberg was brought in to finish the gospel on a high note after the darkness of the cross. In fact, some who claim to be Christian today even go as far as to deny the resurrection really happens. They say, well, no, it's, it's more fantasy than reality. It's a symbol of new life for us to aspire to, but it didn't really happen. Well, John a close disciple of Jesus, whose resurrection account we're studying this morning. Well, to him, the physical resurrection of Jesus is both true and incredibly significant. True and incredibly significant. Just see what he writes when he's describing the purpose for writing his gospel. It's up on the screen. This is what he says later in our chapter in verses 30 and 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, the resurrection was the greatest sign Jesus ever did. And John gives us his account of it so that we, he hopes, might know who Jesus really is. And by doing so, John says, have life in Jesus' name. So for John, understanding the truth of Jesus' resurrection is a matter of life and death. A matter of life and death. And that alone should make it worthy of our close attention. We're going to look at this account that John's recorded for us of the resurrection with two questions in the back of our minds. What is the evidence for Jesus being raised? That's the first question. What is the evidence for Jesus being raised? How do we know it really happened? And then secondly, what is the significance of Jesus being raised? What is the significance? Why does it really matter to us now? all these years on. Let's come to our first heading as he starts to speak to us 
of the empty tomb. Come to chapter 20 and verse 1. John writes, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. John gives us his first witness to Jesus' empty tomb. Mary Magdalene, a really helpful witness indeed, because Mark, another gospel writer, tells us in his account, see what he says. Firstly, speaking of the crucifixion when Jesus died, what we remembered on Good Friday. Mark commented, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. They were looking on as Jesus was being put to death. And then later, Mark writes, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. So this Mary Magdalene that John introduces us to, first of all, has witnessed Jesus' death, his burial, and now she's witnessing the empty tomb of Jesus. So friends, for those who say, oh, they went to the wrong tomb, no, I don't think so. She had seen which tomb Jesus had been burying in, having died. She had watched that huge stone being rolled to block its entrance. She had seen the other writers of the gospel tell us the guards that had been posted as sentries on duty to guard the tomb. And friends, if she had gone to the wrong tomb on that first Easter Sunday, which was very unlikely anyway, the religious authorities who had put Jesus to death in the first place would have been so quick to go to the right tomb and they would have taken out the dead body of Jesus and put it on display for everyone to see. And that would have destroyed the case for his resurrection at the start. But they didn't, because they couldn't. Mary went to the right tomb, and it was empty. And yet her first thought isn't, Jesus is raised! That's not the first thing that goes through her mind. Instead, she buys into another conspiracy theory that someone had stolen the body of Jesus. You see what she says when she reports the empty tomb to Peter and John, who's referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. Have a look halfway through verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so the disciples, Peter and John, having heard that disturbing news, they sprint as fast as they can to the tomb. John outruns Peter, but then he hesitates when he gets to the entrance. He doesn't go in. Peter catches up and he just goes straight in. And he sees what Mary saw. The empty tomb. Jesus' body is not there. But something has been left behind. Something that John wants us to be very clear about. He mentions it three times in verses 5 and 6 and 7. Jesus' grave clothes. Uh, the linen cloths that his dead body 
had been wrapped in. They were just lying where the body of Jesus had been put to rest. Probably on a shelf that had been cut out at the back of the tomb. But the face cloth that had covered Jesus' face when he was being prepared for burial, that had been deliberately taken and moved and put in another place. See in verse 7, the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now how is that useful evidence that Jesus is raised? Well, remember what Mary believes at this point. The body of my Lord has been stolen. Now, I imagine in a group of this size, at least one of us has suffered from a case of burglary in the past, or at least knows friends or families who have suffered the same. Burglars, thieves, are generally speaking not known for their tidiness when it comes to committing their crimes. They take anything of value as quickly as they can. They don't care about the mess that they make in the process while they're ransacking your house. When my friend's laptop got stolen when he was at uni, he lived in, he lived in a house that was shared by other students and he had the unfortunate position of living in the front living room, uh, which open window, heading out onto the streets, a lot of people walking by. And one day he had left his laptop on his desk. He had gone out just to make a coffee in the kitchen. He heard this great commotion in his study and he ran back. His laptop was gone. Someone had actually gone through the window, picked it up and then ran off with it. And the mess they had made in the process, there was coffee all over the table. It was a complete mess. And yet in the empty tomb of Jesus, not only had his burial clothes remained, but his headdress had been placed apart from the other dressings and neatly folded. Friends, if his body had been stolen, why would the thieves not have just taken the whole thing, wrappings and all? And why on earth would they have spent time taking the headcloth and then folding it neatly and putting it in a separate place? Jesus is no longer in his tomb, not because his body has been stolen, but because he is risen. Jesus is alive. But why is that so significant? Why is that so significant for us here living in 2012? Why are the empty tomb and the the grave clothes that remain that point to Jesus and the fact that he is raised, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, let's look at the significance. It should matter to us that Jesus is raised because, friends, one day we will die. One day we will die. Hopefully not any time soon, but at some point we will die. Uh, the Americans, those of, us, uh, those of us who are American around us will know this saying. They have a saying when speaking of something that's certain to happen. They say it's as certain as death and taxes. Now, for the Apple fans among us, you might, know, you might recognize the speech that's about to come up on the screen. Steve Jobs, the ex-CEO of Apple, when he was giving a speech at his home university, said some rather extraordinary things about death a few years before he died. This is 
uh, a quote taken literally from the, uh, uh, from the speech that he submitted, uh, that he spoke to these students back in 2005. This is what he said. Death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it, and that is as it should be. Death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Well, with due respect to Steve Jobs, I have to disagree with him here on two points. Firstly, death is not the single greatest invention of life. You see, I think we here in Malaysian society have a more biblical view of death than the West does, or certainly Steve Jobs does there. We don't see it as a positive thing, do we? In fact, we go to serious lengths just to forget about the reality of death as we live. It's very rare when you go out into KL, if you go into the high-rise tower blocks and you go into one of the lifts, one of the elevators, it's, it's very rare to find the number four. Do you know why? You see those 3A, 13A, 23A? It's because in Chinese, the Chinese word for four sounds like the Chinese word for death. We go to some extreme lengths to try and forget about the reality of death in this society. And I think that's, it's right that we fear death. The Bible is very clear on that. It speaks of death as our greatest enemy. It's the one enemy that we can never escape from, no matter how hard we try. And the Bible also teaches that death is not a natural part of life. Death is a curse that has come into our world and it affects everyone now because this is the penalty that we face for sin. Death is the consequence of sin. That is what God has to teach us in his word. It is the penalty that we face for failing to love God as members of his creations and failing as a result to love one another faithfully as we should as well. We don't live up to our own standards, let alone to God's standards. In our selfishness, in our lust, in our concern for our own needs above the needs of others, in those secret thoughts we don't want anyone to know about, those secret words that we would be so ashamed if they were exposed. We don't give God what he is due, the undivided loyalty of our hearts and our minds and our wills. So we read in Hebrews 9:27, Man is destined to die once and then face judgment. Not be reincarnated as something else. Not ceasing to exist in every sense. No, man is destined to die once and then face judgment. Jesus spoke more than any other person in the Bible of the reality of judgment. That God in his justice and his love will deal with every sin we commit against him and against our fellow man. And so friends, death is something worth fearing. For guilty sinners, it is the door to God's judgment and eternal condemnation if we are found guilty of sinning against him. But it is precisely because death is such bad news 
for us, that the resurrection of Jesus is such great news for us. And this is the second point where I have to respectfully disagree with Steve Jobs and what he said in that speech. He said, no one has ever escaped death, and that is as it should be. And yet, friends, the resurrection speaks against that. It declares that Jesus himself escaped death in a way that no one else ever has. Now, Jesus, he did raise people from the dead. John records that for us in his gospel. He particularly emphasizes one man that Jesus raised during his earthly ministry, Lazarus, back in chapter 11. Jesus commanded Lazarus, his friend who had been dead for four days, to come out of his tomb. And Lazarus stumbled out of his tomb alive. But John makes it clear to us that this resurrection of Lazarus was merely a shadow of what Jesus would achieve when he rose from the dead. Let me just read for you. It's up on the screen. John 11:44. Speaking of Lazarus, the man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Lazarus still had his grave clothes clinging to him when Jesus raised him. He was alive, but he would only live to die again on a later day. For the James Bond fans amongst us, Lazarus could be termed as, you only live twice or die another day. That's why the grave clothes of Jesus are so important. Those grave clothes that Peter and John found in the empty tomb, they are so significant because they show us that Jesus not only rose to live again, but also to live and never die. Earlier we had Psalm 16 read to us, uh, written by David, the king of Israel who reigned a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. He reigned over God's people. And David, writing about God's faithfulness to him. Let me just give you one of the verses from that psalm. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And yet we know that David isn't the Holy One that he speaks of here, because he did see corruption. King David died a normal death. He was buried and his body corrupted and wasted away. But God had promised that one day he would establish a king from David's line whose reign would never end. That king would bring peace and security to God's people and would deal with the greatest problem that they had of sin. That was bringing God's judgment against them. Well, Jesus, as the Son of God, who took on flesh for us, born of the line of David, he is that promised Holy One that we read about in Psalm 16. He is God's ultimate Saviour King for his people. Because he lived that life as the Son of God that we couldn't, that we wouldn't, 
submitting to the will of his heavenly Father perfectly, loving, honoring him, and so loving his fellow man in every thought, in every word, in every deed, he could not be faulted. And yet although he was without sin, he spoke of the day when he himself would die. But it would be no normal death. You read in John 12.32, Jesus speaking of himself, And I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Rather than dying as a result of sins that he had committed, he went to the cross, what we remembered on Good Friday, to draw others to himself, to pay for the sins of other people in full. That is how God's promised King saves us, by laying his life down for us. And because he had no sin of his own, death, it just couldn't hold him. He did not see corruption, to use those words from Psalm 16. Instead, he was raised to reign as God's king forevermore. Jesus defeated both sin and death in his own body by taking them and nailing them to the cross for us by burying them in that tomb and by conquering them, by raising again to life everlasting. Before raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was speaking to Lazarus' sister, Martha. She was so upset that her brother had died, of course, and she cried to Jesus, if only you had been here earlier, if only you had been here when he was just ill and not dead, you could have healed him, you could have saved him. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Death is the greatest enemy we will ever face as a human race. But because Jesus rose from the dead, Death has already been defeated for those who trust in him. Instead, we have received the promise of eternal life. And that's the kind of rescue that we need as sinners. We need to be saved not so much from physical death, but the eternal death that follows. If we are found guilty of sin on that day of judgment, and so cast from God's presence forever, while Jesus is the only one who can give us that rescue. It is only through trusting in him that we have the promise of eternal life. Well, let's move on to the second main point that John wants to make in his account in the resurrection. Come back to chapter 20. We're just going to follow on from verse 10. The disciples, they go back to their homes, but Mary sticks around. She's weeping outside the tomb, John tells us. And eventually, she herself, she peers inside and witnesses another incredible sight. Have a look in verse 12. And Mary saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they ask her, 
Why are you crying? Now Mary, of course, she still believes that the body of Jesus has been stolen. And she probably hasn't even seen the burial clothes. There's the slightly distracting sight of two blazing white angels sitting where Jesus' body laid. So she repeats her cry of distress to them. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. But before they respond, she turns around because she senses there's someone behind her. And John tells us very starkly, it's Jesus. Only Mary doesn't recognize him. There's something that's keeping her from seeing him clearly at this point. And Jesus asks her, who are you looking for? She just assumes that this man standing before her, well, he's the gardener. This is the guy who looks after the tombs, who looks after the site where Jesus has been laid. If, if, if anyone knows where the body of Jesus has been taken, this will be the man. And so she asks him, where have you taken my Lord? But then that shroud that was blinding her from seeing Jesus clearly, it just falls away. Because Jesus calls her by name, Mary. And immediately, she sees her Lord that had been crucified before her very eyes, standing before her, alive and well. She cries out in relief, Rabboni! Addressing him respectfully and lovingly but fearfully as well as her teacher. And having seen Jesus in the flesh standing before her very eyes and spoken with him, she leaves. Have a look in verse 18. Mary went out and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord! And that he had said these things to her. Mary was the first eyewitness that John gives us who saw the risen Jesus in the flesh. And through her testimony and Jesus appearing later to the disciples, they also believe. See what a later believer, the Apostle Paul, would write in a letter to one of the churches, to the church in Corinth, that Jesus appeared to Peter then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Mary was the first of many eyewitnesses to the risen Lord. So the resurrection wasn't an illusion. Jesus, having risen, was seen by groups of people, large groups of people, at the same time. You cannot hallucinate as a group. Most of the pe those people could verify their witness of seeing the risen Jesus because they were still alive when Paul wrote these words. If there was any doubt, the men reading these words could go and check with the people that Paul is speaking about. Did you really see him? Yes, we did. And all but one of the disciples gave their lives testifying to the fact that Jesus is raised and that they saw him. It was the foundation of their faith that Jesus was risen. You know, today it's sadly all too common for people to give their lives and lose their lives for a lie that they believe. But it would be extraordinary for anyone to give their life for a lie that they knew to be not true. 
the evidence again points conclusively to the fact that Jesus is raised. And the words that he speaks to Mary on that first Sunday morning, having appeared to her in the garden, they give us another window into the significance of his new life. Have a look in verse 17. See what Jesus says to Mary. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now there are several theories as to why Jesus doesn't let Mary cling to him at this point. It it might be because he's concerned about intimacy. Uh, Mary, of course, is emotionally fragile at this point and they're, for the first time, they're alone together in the garden. So it might be that Jesus tells Mary, "Don't, don't, don't cling to me, don't touch me. But once he had ascended to the Father, she would receive his spirit and enjoy close communion with our Lord through him. That's one option. Others have suggested that Jesus is telling Mary not to cling on to him now because he's not even leaving yet. He hasn't ascended to the Father yet. There's going to be further opportunity for her to enjoy fellowship with him while he is still with them before he leaves. Now, both of those interpretations are possible. But we're going to focus on what Jesus says after that where he says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascended to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Last month was a very special month for myself and Melissa. No, it wasn't because the baby was born, but rather not quite as important, but we got our new car. Um, there's a picture on the screen. That's what I've been told my car would look like if I invested in this nice body kit or something like that. So it's all very exciting, nice new car. I was very happy because it was quite an upgrade from the previous car that I had. The aircon works. The windows don't fall down or fall out on the highway. That was helpful. So having just received this brand new car, I nearly went and did something really stupid. I wasn't speeding. I didn't nearly crash into anything. Instead, I pulled up to one of the local Shell stations and I came this close to doing this. Yeah, to picking up the diesel pump and fueling up my lovely brand new petrol car with diesel fuel. Not a good thing to do. There was no, they're very good in Malaysia actually, unlike places, I think this is in the States or in the UK, Malaysia they make it very clear, there's usually a guard or something so you can't get to the diesel, it's very clear, but for some reason this time the guard wasn't there, okay, and I was probably quite tired, so I nearly picked up the pump and put it straight into the tank. For those of us who have made that error in the past, well we soon find out that petrol cars and diesel fuel don't mix very well. They don't mix. We have to go to the mechanic and get him to sort out the engine. Petrol cars do not run on diesel. They weren't made to. Well, friends, we weren't made to live in sin. We were not made to live in sin. We were made for relationship 
with the God who gave us life. No matter what dreams we achieve, no matter what pleasures we experience, no matter what ambitions we devote our lives to now, none of those things will truly bring lasting peace and rest to us. Because we were made for something so much greater. To be children of the living God. To know him, to serve him, to delight in him and have every one of our needs met in him and by him. And yet, friends, we've all exchanged that truth for a lie. And we've taken the road of sin the road that leads to death. We've rejected God as our God. We pretend we're in control of our own destinies. And yet that doesn't change the fact that God made us the very core of our being to enjoy Him, to delight in Him, and to know Him. Just like petrol cars that were made to run on petrol and nothing else. We were made to know and enjoy God. We won't find rest until we find true rest in him. And friends, again, that is why the resurrection is such good news. Because it is the proof that God in his love has acted to restore that relationship that we broke off in our sin. When Jesus died at that cross on Good Friday, he didn't just pay for the sins of his people. He didn't just take on board the full punishment of our sins so that we might be forgiven. He did that, but he did more. He became our substitute so that we, through faith in him, could receive something from him as he died on the cross for us. His righteousness his perfect record of obedience to his heavenly Father. Jesus' new life in his resurrection is a picture of the new life that we can now have with God, that new life that we were made for. You see, no other religious leader has ever claimed that they themselves are the way to God whether it be Buddha or Gandhi or whoever else. They claim to know some rules that we should obey in order to get onto God's right side, but none of them say, trust in me. And yet Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The resurrection proves that Jesus had the authority to say that as the Son of God. He alone can reconcile us to God by dealing with those sins that kept us from knowing him rightly and giving us that righteousness we need in order to be clean before God again, acceptable to him. That is why he, having been raised to new life, could now say to Mary on that first Sunday morning, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Because for Mary, relationship with her God was now possible. Even though one day she would die, she had the promise of life with God both now that would continue into eternity. 
because Jesus was her Lord, her Saviour. Friends, the resurrection means we can have life that we were made for, no longer estranged from God, no longer facing his anger for sin, rather at peace with him, living as his adopted children through Jesus Christ. So in summary, let's think about responding to the resurrection for ourselves. You see, Easter Sunday is only worth celebrating if Jesus' resurrection is effective for us. It's not automatic. Like any gift, the new life that Jesus now offers us in his new life must be received by us. And the way we receive it is by putting our faith in him. Accepting that he is the Lord, the King, that God raised and put over all things, including us, now. And so we surrender the Lordship of our lives to him. Jesus is the boss now, not us. But he is a far better master than sin ever was. He offers us life. We remain in our sins. All we can look forward to is death and judgment. He offers us forgiveness. And friends, one day we will all be raised. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead proves it. We will all be brought to account for the ways in which we've lived. So don't wait till that day to face Jesus as your judge. Friends, if you haven't, please receive Jesus as your Saviour and risen Lord. And for those of us who have done that, friends, be so encouraged. Your sins are dealt with because Jesus is raised. Your life with God now and for eternity is secure because Jesus is raised. Though one day you will die, yet you will live because Jesus is raised. So resolve to continue living for him, serving him, delighting in him each day until he returns and we receive his glory. Be quick to share these words of eternal life that we have received that others might be saved from sin and death and have life in Christ to the glory of his name. Friends, we know the gospel is true. We know it is powerful to save. We know it is powerful to bring hope of life to those who are living in the shadow of death. Because, hallelujah, Jesus is raised. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this sure and true testimony to Jesus' resurrection. We thank you that just as he died on the cross for our sins, that Good Friday so he rose again on that first Easter Sunday morning that we might have the promise of sins forgiven and life eternal in him. Lord, I pray for those of us who are yet to accept Jesus as our Lord. Lord, please help us to see him clearly, to see the significance of his resurrection, that we would all be living 
trusting in him as our Lord and Saviour and looking forward to that great day of salvation when we will be raised in him when we will have the promise of eternal life as a result of your great love for us in Christ. Help those of us who are trusting in Jesus now to be living for that day and to be constantly encouraged and secured in the fact that Jesus is raised. Amen.